This is episode two of the Inner Game of Aging podcast. Welcome to the Inner Game of Aging podcast, helping you to discover how to be older without growing old. And here's your host, turning this whole idea of aging upside down, Lee Mowat. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Inner Game of Aging podcast. Today, I have Lisa Blackstock with me to discuss the growing field of patient advocacy. If you are a medical consumer, and who isn't these days, then you will want to hear the information and insights in this particular discussion. Our chat lasted a little bit more than 50 minutes, but because of the content, I don't think you'll mind that at all. But at the high point of the discussion, Lisa's laptop battery depleted. So you'll hear the audio shift, but the content was just so relevant, we had to continue on her landline. So here goes. Let's join the conversation already in progress with Lisa Blackstock. I began work for myself in 1990 as an estate administrator and just um, a, a byproduct of that was having clients who were generally seniors with health issues that were coming up. I found myself being asked more and more to do things related to their health care as far as um, keeping their instructions uh, correct, making sure they understood their insurance benefits and those uh, health care visits and treatments that they had were processed carefully and correctly. And uh, lo and behold, when I found myself on the receiving end of health care in 2007 uh, for a, a rare nerve disorder called trigeminal neuralgia, I decided after that that I was going to turn my focus exclusively to patient advocacy, which really didn't even have an official name then. It only became well known as patient advocacy or healthcare advocacy with the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010. Now, a question, if I may, what about your experience with you in 2007 suggested to you that this was needed? What about your personal experience there? So it was the misdiagnosis and also dealing with my medical insurance company, which which was a very reputable company, who told me that um, they did not want to cover any of the cost for the brain surgeon who was recommended to perform my surgery by my diagnosing doctor at UCLA. Um, I successfully appealed with my insurance company to have that neurosurgeon covered, but going through the experience between misdiagnosis, uh, billing issues with the insurance company, as well as um, having a surgeon recommended to me, authorized, um, sort of led me into the direction to think that maybe there were too many people working in the field of estate planning, <laughs> but not nearly enough in um, independent health care or patient advocacy. So that, that was the, the driving force that opened this new career door for me. Why did you think that it was the situation that you had was so widespread as to enter into this field in the manner in which you did? Or was this an experimental point of your career at this point? Okay, I think it was a little bit of both. I, I had seen a lot of um, of clients of mine with healthcare issue-related problems where I had to intervene. I, I knew for whatever reason, and I wasn't sure of the reason at the time, but I'm pretty sure I know now, that there were more and more complications with people receiving healthcare and receiving it properly and having insurance cover it properly, um, combined with the fact that I, I really felt as though I was ready to try something new. Mm -hmm. And in addition, there are many more people in this country who require an independent patient advocate as opposed to an estate administrator. Let's, let's start off with a, just a, a definition of what patient advocacy is. For the, those listeners who 
have never heard of the field or are still confused about it. What's what is what is this field? Okay, well, um, the general field of patient advocacy, um, which is not only covered by independent advocates such as myself, but hospitals and medical insurance companies also have patient advocates. And the, the purpose is to theoretically help advocate for a patient during treatment and, uh, and billing and payment issues. Now, there has become a more deliberate move on behalf of advocates like myself who don't answer to a hospital or a medical insurance company, and we aren't paid by them, to distinguish ourselves with the title of independent patient or healthcare advocate, uh, to distinguish us from those people who would be working in hospitals or medical insurance companies. Interesting. The so, uh, let me see if I understand this. You'll have to help me along the way. I'm just becoming familiar with this. There are various types, if I understand, that they're distinguished by who's employing them. Correct. Okay, and the various types are those who work for hospitals, those who work for insurance companies, and those who are independent, hired by the patient themselves. Correct. So where a patient would independently hire a person, that patient advocate's allegiance is only to the patient. We don't have to satisfy a hospital administrative policy, nor do we have to, um, you know, comply with the terms of a medical insurance company. We are not employees. In addition to making a distinction between who's you know who's hiring the patient advocate the hospital the patient or insurance company there are also other distinctions that patient advocates can go through i've run across terms like medical billing advocate versus caregiving advocate versus can you straighten out these various types for me and, and how they distinguish along these lines i'm happy to um Similar to real estate agents, you you have uh, the distinction between residential agents and commercial agents. And even within those categories, you have some people who specialize in starter homes, move-up homes, luxury homes. Mm-hmm. So in healthcare advocacy, there are different types of services that are offered One is billing. There are some advocates who provide billing assistance, and that's all. And it's up to every individual advocate how they would like to advertise their services. There are some advocates that will accompany a patient to a doctor's appointment, to a hospital, uh, to see them through a a procedure like a surgery and assist with their discharge. But just as in real estate and airline seats, really. There's so many different types of services, you know, types of seats that are offered with corresponding fares. So it really is, um, it's very important that a person searching for an independent advocate understand not only what makes independent advocates unique, but think about what that person's specific needs are and be sure that they're searching for someone who has those those matching qualifications because it, it is a wide-ranging field and um, an individual would be best served by searching very specifically for what it is they need help with. That sounds like, well, again, the need for patient advocacy has become rather obvious. The medical bureaucracies are just becoming so extensive. It's hard for me to even understand the simplest things when I receive a a bill. So, and then to understand my treatments. So I am identifying with what you're saying. However, to sort through a variety of patient advocates and their services would also be confusing. As a patient, I may not know exactly what I need. Um, You know, If I'm confused about my bill, I may end up hiring a medical billing advocate and end up needing services that relate to my health. It's it still seems it's it still seems somewhat confusing. 
you mentioned certification. What sort of certifications are typically given to patient advocates? Okay, that's a great question. Um, a couple of years ago, a committee was formed um, called the Patient Advocacy Certification Board, PACB. And that is a group of very dedicated people who are presently working on what would be an appropriate universal credential for the field and how to test for that properly. But in the interim, the, the way that advocates are recommended to advertise their services is to be very open with any potential client, let them know that the certification is still being discussed, and it really is the responsibility of the client, even if they like the first advocate with whom they speak, I also recommend that your listeners ask for references from each of those advocates. They could sound like the most wonderful people in the world, and for the most part they are because this is a selfless profession, but there is a difference in someone who's just starting out, and there is a difference with somebody who is battleground tested. Another recommendation is that a potential client also also ask about the pref professional liability insurance that an independent advocate has because it is important that that people show that they are professional and operate in a professional manner and the profession believes as do i that professional liability insurance is just part of being a, a professional healthcare advocate now, we will get into the patient side of this in a little bit, but just becoming a patient advocate itself sounds like it has to come from someplace inside that is, I mean, there's a lot to do just to be a patient advocate as a business, if I'm understanding you correctly. You've been doing this for a while and have managed to get all this behind you for the most part. But for someone new into the field, there is a lot to do to start helping people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there, There is one national patient advocacy group that exists, and I, I have been a member of a group that goes by the acronym of um, APHA, the Association of Professional Healthcare Advocates. Um, they offer to their members, of, of whom I am one and have been one for several years, they offer marketing programs, they offer access to an attorney, to an insurance advisor, they offer access to other advocates, to mentors, people who have been in the business for a while, and they are, uh, if they're interested, they can hire one. Um, there are multiple patient advocacy credential programs that exist all throughout the country today, um, but it's very important that not only people who want to go into the field of ad patient advocacy, but also searching for a patient advocate, understand that the credential, while it may be legitimately earned from a particular institution. It is not recognized as a national credential yet. Um, these programs have different kinds of syllabi. And I think from what I've seen, and I certainly haven't seen them all, they range from what I consider introductory to more specific. And even colleagues in my own field um, rate these programs internally so we can help each other decide, mostly for newcomers, what is out there that is very thorough that is going to expose the common traps when a person walks into a doctor's office, a diagnostic mm. facility, a hospital, an outpatient surgery center, or rehab, uh, or has to pick up the phone to deal with insurance. Each one of those, you could make a whole business on. Now, I, for for my listeners, I will have 
links in my show notes that point to some of the organizations that Lisa is mentioning here. But getting back to these organizations, these are being set up for the certification purposes to, you know, to as an umbrella over the whole field to survey, to supervise, to assure the consuming public that they're connected to professionals in this in this area okay and, actually lee mm-hmm. if i could just um sure just clarify something many of these organizations existed before the patient advocacy certification board was established last year oh okay. so my understanding is these national organizations um a couple of whom I belong to, they they came into existence to help people who want to be patient advocates, as well as the searching public who would want to know what the field is, who the people are, how to screen them. But my understanding is that when the uh, PACB board does finalize its recommendations and assuming that all of that moves forward without a hitch. At that point, I I believe there will be some changes in the field, but I don't think that we know what those are going to look like yet. Now, I'd like to get into some of the services that patient advocates provide. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a wide range of services that, that, you know, I mean, from... Oh, I can't even start. It it seems like a whole parade of services that can be supplied by a patient advocate. Can you help us sort through what's going on with all the services that can come from a patient advocate? Well, that's a great question. And I have to tell you, for as many services as I provide, um, I do not provide every single one. So I'm going to refer <laughs> to um, a web page where there is a a much more detailed listing and you may want to if you're not considering already um advoconnection. Yes, okay. Um I will I I think I have that link and I will most certainly let me just make sure I have it down advoconnection.com. And is there is that is that it? Um, no, actually, there are. I, I can tell you, and and this is by no means a thorough list because um, I'm very fortunate that when I found these organizations uh, just after the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010, my business was already established mm. and thriving. Um, and I literally stumbled onto them by accident, but they were still relatively new. There are several, but the two that I belong to, um, which I'm happy to give you, yes, please. Um, are the two that have national directories and also break down uh, a search of an advocate by desired services. So in addition to Advo Connection, there's another one um, that goes by the initials N-A-H-A-C. Okay. That stands for the National Association of Healthcare Advocacy Consultants. Uh, okay. <laughs> they also have a a very thorough national website where a client, there are no charge for, for viewers on the internet to, to view the, um, the directories. You can break down by specific needs that you have as well as your zip code. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, um, these are just a few of the types of things that people search for. The first one may seem and sounds pretty obvious, accompanying you or a loved one to a medical appointment or being by your bedside at the hospital. Um, There are some advocates that will actually do research about your medical condition Mm. and look into different treatment options Mm. that you have. Um, Not all the time do doctors who are being forced to work faster than ever before, Mm. that's another whole issue, but a lot of times you will not receive um, the range of options that you have, which I think is extremely important. Um, 
advocates can also help a person or a group of their loved ones make difficult decisions. We are not decision makers, but we can serve as sounding boards if that's something that's desired. Do you, do you mediate between family members? Some advocates do. Okay. We, we cannot make decisions, but as I'm sure many people can envision listening to this, getting a family whether they're biologically related or just emotionally connected as such, under the same roof and having everyone agree with a major decision is usually very difficult, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to um, a terminal diagnosis, a serious diagnosis Mm -hmm. that where you can opt for different kinds of treatment, or even end of life and palliative care. So what what an advocate can do, because they're not emotionally involved in the situation, is try to keep perspective, and people are understandably emotional in situations like this. It can be very frightening, extremely frightening, and you know, and devastating. Sometimes the consequences. So yes, there are advocates who are skilled in mediation and negotiation. Um, We, there are also advocates who focus on pregnancy and wellness. People who help those people who are plagued by chronic pain, which is Mm. an awful issue and really a field unto itself. Let me dig into something that you just mentioned. You said that you can sometimes help people understand all of their options rather than just the ones that the doctors have listed. That would require some research or some knowledge about the condition that the patient is going through. And I'm I'm assuming that you don't carry a, a constant body of medical information around with you. You must end up doing some research on on the on the patient that you're advocating a for. Lot, a lot. So, um, so now if you find that there was an option that was not mentioned that could show some promise for this particular patient, how do you go about suggesting that to the patient, the doctor, the hospital? Give me, give me a scenario. Well, we, re- we really don't like to, um, Unless the patient specifically requests it, um, patient advocates prefer to deal directly with the patients Mm -hmm. only with their permission and request, would we deal with a doctor or a hospital? But generally, if if a client came to me, say someone came to me with a cancer diagnosis, Mm -hmm. and it was, I mean, I'll use an example of my own family that goes many years back. Um, I had a close family member who was diagnosed with lung cancer. And at the time of diagnosis, the cancer had already metastasized to some of the major body organs. And the only option that was given to this family member was chemotherapy. That was the only option. Um, In retrospect, um, I... In researching, I found out that there was only a 5% chance that this person would have survived at least one year, which doesn't mean that they would have been cured. That just meant they would have survived at least one year. And I, I believe that it really is the patient's final decision as to whether or not they, if they do receive a serious diagnosis, such as the one I've just spoken about, do they want to subject themselves to chemotherapy and the side effects that many chemotherapies have? Or would they want to consider palliative care, which means focusing on them being comfortable for the rest of their natural life? Um, I don't think that anyone can make that decision for anybody else. Um, I, I do believe that in an ideal world, a doctor would be able to make all of those recommendations, but the physicians that I've been around the last several years are extremely overworked under a lot of time constraints, under a lot of financial constraints, and um, I think that an advocate would would be a, a great resource for people to have at a minimum just to know what treatment options you have moving forward. We don't have a stake in any of these options. Um, ethically, we are not allowed to accept 
referral fees, any type of commissions on a doctor or a treatment center or a supplement that, that might be offered. We, we are asked, and I think it's proper, that we hold ourselves to a very high standard so people know that when they're getting information from us, and I always put it in writing, It's easy to be distracted. People can be upset. People can be overwhelmed. But if you have something in writing, a lot of people forward that on to family members or close friends so everyone can be in the loop. You mentioned the uh, referral fees. As, as patient advocates can recommend this or recommend that, do they ever get any referral fees for their recommendations? This could be another source of income. It could be a question of conflict of, in, conflict of interest or, you know, it raises ethical questions. You know. Absolutely. So, well, tell me about this. Okay. In order to be a member of the two national organizations that I mentioned to you, APHA and NAHAC, mm-hmm. there is a code of ethics by which members must abide by. And one of them is that we will not enter into a situation where there is a conflict of interest. Um, if it's discovered that an advocate, and this has happened, where an advocate has intentionally or accidentally violated that, um, they are no longer an advocate under the umbrella of that organization. Well, see, one of the reasons why I asked the question is because I know doctors themselves can get kickbacks because of how they prescribe medicine or you know, and other sorts right. of things. And hospitals take part in that as well. And, you know, this is one of the... Um, unfortunate aspects of the medical industry as it's grown up in this country. I agree. And so establishing that cash flow through such a means can be awfully attractive. And I suppose it doesn't always have to be bad, but it usually does not lead to good things, in my opinion. I'm looking at the medical industry itself and saying things like that. Well, I, I agree with you. I think that when a person comes to you and trusts you enough to retain your services because they they need something objective accomplished but they're always looking for emotional support as well i i do think it's a a violation of 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 what the mm-hmm. service that i provide ethically yes. i um even though there's a great demand for this field and mm-hmm. i think it will become increasingly more in demand i think that People considering it need to understand that that the way they practice from a technical point of view, but also from an ethical point of view, is incredibly important. And, and potential clients out there, this is why it's a good idea to talk to more than one advocate, to get references, multiple references for any advocate who you're considering, and also verify their professional liability insurance. Yeah, I can I can see the need for that. Another thing you mentioned in a previous statement, doctors are being pressed more than they've been before for timeliness, for yeah, you know, for certain activities that generate money for hospitals, and they're being monitored and supervised in this way that sort of degrades medicine. I I agree. I think it runs completely uh, counter to the Hippocratic Oath, which is to do no harm. And I think that that's a question that every patient should ask a doctor um, if they have the luxury to make a medical appointment or even if they're in the emergency room for something um, more, more serious, ask the doctor what under under what umbrella do you practice? Not because it means they're a good or a bad doctor. I do advise people to ask whether a doctor is in private practice, if someone other than them owns their practice, because that's happening as well, or are they a private physician? The need for patient advocates have come about if I understand things correctly, because the medical industry seems to be disconnecting from the patient itself. You know, the, the patient is viewed as a profit center as opposed to do no harm, help, 
Yeah, and uh, that that is also my personal opinion based on my experience. Um, I think after healthcare lobbyists spent about one point two billion dollars lobbying Congress um, before the Affordable Care Act was passed, I think that says a lot about the legislative system. Mm. Most of the bankruptcies that occur in our country now are because of individuals' inability to pay medical bills. Mm. That's a fact. Yes. And um, that wasn't the case 10 years ago. So there's something going on. And I think when you add up lobbying dollars, um, there were eight lobbyists per each congressperson voting the Affordable Care Act. That comes from um, the Harvard Law School. That's Mm -hmm. not my statistic. That's the Harvard Law School. I think it's, and I'm happy to provide you with that link if I haven't already, because that article is a tremendous resource. It's I would like that link for my show notes. The state of the medical industry itself, there's just so much confusion. It is difficult to navigate this landscape. It is extremely difficult, not just from a medicine point of view, or a treatment point of view, but from a billing point of view. Absolutely. You know, the, if you make, you know, a, a treatment done one way could be free, whereas done another way, the same treatment done another way could cost you thousands. Absolutely. And I find that incredible because you'd have to know everything beforehand and how to get things done in a cheaper manner, how to get the same things done in a cheaper manner. How do you even start to know all this? Okay, well, um, there there is a website which is free to the consumer that was started by a doctor in Tennessee. It is called, it's all one word, all lowercase. The the website is healthcarebluebook.com. All one word. All one word. Um, that I use that as a resource when I'm negotiating a bill after the fact. Because the app helps people to navigate uh, their own care. Or why don't you say a little bit, well, word, a few words I, about let it? Me, the the app the the title of the app is called Dependable Doc. Mm-hmm. Now I am not a medical doctor, and I've never represented myself as such. But when you spend as much time in the hospital as I have, and I mean staying for two or three days at a time because you want to be sure that you understand exactly what's happening to your client and they're not rushed out of the hospital prematurely, you understand the plan of care. Um, I've had many doctors um, talk to me off the record who who really are saddened by the state of the way healthcare is evolved. They are no longer able to be independent and private. Um, financially, insurance reimbursements have dropped so low. That is the, the main reason why they're being forced to work as employees or if they've had their own practices, sell their practices. But the, the subtitle of my app is Patient Pushback App. So... Mm-hmm. I would say that the main per and the app is going to be released on um, the first day of summer of this year, June 20th. But the main purpose of the app is to educate people even before they're navigating their care. I would say it's more of a consumer educational tool that is going to be sort of like a cliff notes (laughs) for people where they can access this very simple app learn about what's gone on um, over the last 10 years, which is about what, what I think is reasonable with the politics behind healthcare, the business behind healthcare, and what patients' rights are. Uh, this, so that that's the main purpose of the app is to educate people and give them resources, ideally before they find themselves in a crunch. But if they do find themselves in a crunch, there will be a link to all of my colleagues nationwide, as well as other resources where they'll be able to speak more confidently and informed to people on the 
on the delivery care end because a lot of things are not disclosed. They're not legally mm, yes. required to be disclosed, but they definitely affect the outcome of the patient, in my opinion. Interesting. I want to turn this in a slightly different direction. During your discussion of services, you mentioned pain management. This is can be a somewhat uh, catch-all phrase, and it often involves um, drugs and other stuff that can be abused and stuff like that. Absolutely. How 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 does a patient advocate enter into a pain management case? I'm just a curiosity of mine. Chronic pain is something that that I have a tremendous amount of experience and empathy with. Um, I don't recommend that anyone um, going into advocacy start off by accepting patients with chronic pain because one big problem is the medical community in general is not dealing very well with this issue. The only way to treat most pain is with controlled substances that are highly addictive. It's very important for your listeners to understand that patient advocates do not recommend medications. We cannot prescribe medications. But what we can do in the case of chronic pain is help the client be represented in front of a doctor because oftentimes people are so debilitated Mm. that just getting out of bed Mm. is an effort. Chronic pain is incredibly difficult to identify in many cases and to treat effectively, even with the use of medication. So, um, but one ways that that advocates can help with chronic pain is is guiding people to specific programs, not recommending a a program, but letting them know about different programs that exist. There are still doctors in major metropolitan areas who are lucky enough to be able to be in private practice and handle pain management specifically. These are the types of things that I like to provide those types of clients as resources. I wanted to ask you uh, about another side of this, uh, the medical billing side. You know, mm-hmm. um, healthcare can be extremely confusing in its cost and can be very expensive. And we can do things in ways that maximize or minimize our costs. Can you give me an example in your practice? You know, and if if you can't off the top of your head, that's not a problem. Of of how how. A, patient advocate operates to reduce your medical billing costs. Okay, I'd like no, to understand I, that. The stories are endless. <laughs> tell the me a few. The stories are endless. So you're just going to have to tell me how many you want to well, hear. Let me, let's start off with the first one and I'll give you some guidance after that. Okay. <laughs> um, I'll give you uh, a couple of, two, three years ago, I was called on New Year's night as my husband and I were driving home from the Rose Bowl. And the call was from out of state, from the state of Wisconsin, where a middle-aged woman told me that her aunt, who was a widow without children, was hospitalized in Los Angeles. Um, This woman had recently lost her husband. He had handled all of the personal business for them, and her medical insurance had lapsed accidentally. Mm. And she was in the hospital, but the hospital financial aid uh, representative who visited her room for the past three days had requested a check for $15,000, which this woman issued because she knew she didn't have insurance. She didn't know she had any other options. Well, I told her niece that I would be at the hospital the next day And I would put a stop to it because that is not a legal practice. Now, what's not a legal practice here? It is not a legal practice to, you can, a a provider can do it, whether it's a doctor's office or a diagnostic facility or a hospital. They can request any amount of money up front, but a patient has a legal right to request an itemized breakdown of what comprises the amount being requested. Yes, so every every listener should should know this is extremely important. If you're asked to pay up front or if you even receive a bill 
requesting an itemized detailed billing with the corresponding medical code for every bit of what you're charged is one way off the top of the bat that I stopped this woman from having to pay. Uh, People are having their, myself included, medical bills for a balance due that I never receive, Um, the bill never appearing, but being contacted by a collection agency. Oh, geez. Wow. So um, I've also been able to take bills after the fact. Um, As you might imagine, I'm I'm never more popular (laughs) when somebody's in the middle of a crisis. So unfortunately, that's almost always after the care has been provided or is being provided. So a medical bill has been generated and it's just going but by staying in the hospital or by going to a physician's office with a client and taking notes as care is being rendered um, I'm able to look at a bill after the fact and find items that were never provided and I'm not saying that this is deliberate I know that medical billing is a field that has evolved where, again, a person can get a credential. Mm. It's not really recognized by anyone, and there's no certification board that overlooks uh, patient billing Mm -hmm. people being credentialed. But I I found bills where procedures are listed on there that were never performed. Um, I had a client who went to the dermatologist to have a mole removed and she received a bill for a thousand dollars approximately. And when she contacted me, um, I told her, I said, there, there's gotta be a mistake in there. Do you have an itemized medical bill? She said, what's an itemized medical bill? The business of healthcare has become its own secret universe. Mm. It's really not that complicated, but you need to understand the right questions to ask. When she requested her bill, there, I would say two thirds of the bill was for a charge that fell under the medical billing code. That's also known as the CPT code. Ah, yes. Okay, so every medical procedure, every medical item, one aspirin, one band aid, one piece of sterile gauze, it all corresponds with a code, and that is required to be listed on every medical bill. This person with the mole removal was charged $650 for what was described as plastic surgery. Hmm. So I asked her, I said, "What? it's possible if someone has a mole removed from their face or their neck, maybe there is some kind of a skin graft mm-hmm. that could be involved, but... Uh, that's not the patient advocate's job to say what was appropriate or what wasn't. I requested her medical record. There was no reference for plastic surgery. I had the client sign a HIPAA release. I called the office. And when they heard I was an independent patient advocate, they immediately offered me 40% off of the bill. Interesting. Without, <laughs> without even talking about why I was specifically calling. Interesting. But in the in the final analysis, in this particular case, the person ended up paying $175, which was applied toward their deductible. Everyone knows medical deductibles now are higher than they mm. were before the Affordable Care Act. You have got to be proactive. Even if you consult with a patient advocate for 30 minutes, we do it by the phone, we do it in person, we'll do it via Skype Mm -hmm. or via email. In this case, a woman paid me a $200 retainer, but ended up not only having my fees saved, but an additional several hundreds of dollars. Okay. Here goes a question that comes from what you just said. In your view... Now, I've seen hospital bill errors. In your view, what percentage of hospital bills have errors in them? Um, Easily, easily, I would say conservatively half of them. At least half of the bills have errors. Conservatively. But I can tell you that in my career, every single bill that I've examined has always had multiple errors. Always. That's my experience. 
It seems like a sad state of affairs. It's, but... it's very sad. Um, the, the other thing that I think is important for you and your listeners to know is that um, there's nothing in the Affordable Care Act that serves as a cost control on medical mm-hmm. expenses. There is a price list called a charge master that is a, it's private. By law, it should be made public upon a patient's request. But my experience is hospitals make it extremely difficult. Hmm. Um, I know there's one locally here that on their website, they say, we will make our charge master public between the hours of 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. in writing in our medical billing office located at such and such a street. But the charge master... Um, Every hospital, every diagnostic facility, and to a lesser extent, every physician's office, they they have a price list that they can change on any given day Mm -hmm. um, without having to answer to anyone. Um, The price list is inflated. Uh, Many years ago, I think it didn't matter as much because all of us could get medical insurance and there was always a pre-negotiated contract between Mm -hmm. a care facility and an insurance company where, as everybody knows, two-thirds of the charge would be written right off the top of the bat. But for people who don't have insurance, and there still are millions without insurance, and for people who do have insurance with deductibles in the multiple thousands of dollars, a lot of people are using their benefits and their just going to satisfy, not even completely satisfy their annual deductible. So if a person has an outpatient procedure for $5,000, that's what they're billed, $5,000. And even if it's, you know, two people, a couple, mm-hmm. um, you generally have an $8,000 in-network deductible to wow. satisfy. I think it's extremely important that they learn the very simple steps that ad billing advocates go through to find out what a fair rate is. And the charge master, by definition, is a price list that is meant to be negotiated. Interesting. But very few people know that. This is valuable information, Lisa. This is very valuable information. So now the... We've discussed two sides of the patient advocacy field. One is handling the patient and its care. The other side is handling the patient and its expenses. Mm-hmm. What's, what side is, is more intense? What's, that, what, what's, what's the larger side of your business, the patient side or the billing side? For my business right now, the billing side is the – those are the most inquiries that I mm-hmm. receive. Um, Okay, this is the point where Lisa and I lost internet connection because her laptop battery had died. However, we pick up the conversation on her phone. Let's join in there. So you were asking me about um, which is more intense, yes, uh, the the patient care side or the billing. Yes. So given given that I understand how to negotiate, and and it is important also, I believe that um, people should know that if they do get their own itemized bill, how they can determine how what charge is appropriate. That's where I use healthcarebluebook.com, okay. and. That allows you, any person, consumer for for no charge, to go on their website. You type in either the um, the medical, the CPT code, or the procedure itself by words, mm-hmm. and you type in the zip code where the procedure occurred. Okay. And what this is, what the program gives you is what a fair and reasonable price is. Um, I mean, I want to emphasize that the the purpose of negotiating medical bills is not to get something for free. I believe that um, everyone who provides a valuable service most definitely deserves to be compensated at a fair and reasonable price. But the problem is medical costs are no longer fair and reasonable, and a greater percentage of uh, our American people mm-hmm. are suffering the brunt of these costs because they have larger deductibles. Um, 
There's also the issue of what's in and out of network, Mm -hmm. which is another whole story. Um, You know, even even when a person is told, you know, yes, um, you're in network, we've already received pre-authorization for this, and they have it in writing. And I definitely recommend that people get that in writing. Mm -hmm. There are cases when they will still be billed. Your listeners should know when you pick up the phone and you are trying to reach a medical insurance company or a hospital or a doctor's office, you are going to be receiving the first line, the most basic line of of answers, um, of which most are scripted. You, You want to kick it up to the highest level you can as quickly as possible. In my case, I will get contact information from general counsels for medical insurance companies and hospitals. I will find out who are on the board of directors or the board of governors in a case of a nonprofit uh, hospital facility. Mm -hmm. Another important thing for people to know is that There really is no difference between profit and not-for-profit hospitals today, other than the fact that the not-for-profit status hospitals do not have to pay taxes, but they are both making significant uh, profits. They, in my experience, are making more of a profit, a a non-taxable profit, than the for-profit hospitals because their charge masters are higher. And in addition, they they want to invest in the the best level of, of um, physicians mm-hmm. and research as possible, and that costs money. Now, you mentioned the charge masters before, and you mentioned them again here. I'd like to get back to these charge masters. These Sure. Let me see if I understand correctly. These charge masters are the price that hospitals advertise they pay that you know certain procedures cost. You know, you have to pay. They will never advertise. Okay. They will never advertise. It is their internal private price list that they will charge and the only time that you will see that full list is um, after you receive your bill. Interesting. Now, uh, how can how can a patient use this knowledge for his own purposes? The fact that he knows that this charge master exists, the fact that it's it can be available to him. I'm assuming it can be available to him. How can he use this? No doctor or hospital will be able to tell you from the beginning, and and this is fair. I I, I will agree on this point. It is impossible to know in advance exactly how long a procedure will take, what equipment is going to be required, how much time an anesthesiologist will need. Um, so, so that is fair enough. But I would say that if a person is having um, an elective surgery where it's not an emergency and they have the ability to schedule it, they should call around to different facilities that provide that service. Mm-hmm. There, there are many of them. Um, they should research the, um, the fair and reasonable price using, well, I like to use healthcarebluebook.com. There, there are other uh, websites, a few others that offer the same service. But, you know, health, healthcare involves effort now. It yes, it does. To, but yes. a person has, has got to be willing to look at this just like you're going to remodel your kitchen, you're going to buy a new house, you're going to send your child for higher education. This this is what we're talking about in yes. American healthcare today. Apparently so. I mean, I'm actually surprised that taking care of your healthcare can turn out to be a full-time job. <laughs> um, believe me, believe me. It's uh, well. This is why there are people such as myself who practice full time, and I think that as the charge masters continue to rise, uh, physicians are not going to be able to have the kind of autonomy that they're used to um, as time goes on. I think the latest statistic that I saw for people graduating from medical school is that nine out of 10 of them statistically are destined to become hospitalists. Uh, 
that doesn't bode well. Well, um, well I, I think, you know, I, I, I owe my life to a surgeon um, who, fortunately, he is, he is still a private practicing physician, but doctors do amazing work, and I personally think it's, it's a shame and it really is unethical what uh, the practice of medicine has turned into where the doctor is not the primary. Um, I think the doctor should be at the top of the pyramid, but that's I, not the case anymore. I couldn't agree more. You know, um, when I look at the miracle that's occurred with my own accident from 11 years ago, what has been given to me in terms of a leg and fixing up my body was truly miraculous in terms of where medicine and medical technology has come. But the business of medicine and even the business of med medical technology is another matter altogether, Lisa. I can approve of medicine and it's intense, but the business of medicine has just left such a bad taste in many people's mouths at this point in time. Absolutely. And I also think that um, as I encounter different hospital administrators who are in charge of the policies, of hospitals that they represent, whether they're for-profit or not-for-profit, <clears throat> I do come across medical doctors who, who serve as administrators. And I really wonder if that's an appropriate place for a physician, a healing physician to serve yeah. in the, the business model of a hospital. It just uh, it uh, doesn't sit right with me. I'm I'm sort of surprised to hear you say the things you are being closer to this industry than I am. So, uh, yeah, your experience counts for more than mine in saying what we are saying here. You know, you've you've seen a lot more stuff go wrong than I have. So, yeah, I mean, I I have to say I just think that with what's going on, the people on the front lines of care not by their own choice, are being put into positions where their behavior, their care is motivated by what administrators are telling them to do. And that affects the bottom line. And Absolutely. Um, I know what I've heard off the record from administrators, nurses, and doctors uh, is really something that I wish... Uh, uh, a House committee or subcommittee in Washington would convene to find out what's really going on. But I'm afraid that the lobbyists have, have beat me to that. <laughs> you, you're, you're making uh, an important point when you say it's not really the doctors. They're more like victims, just like the patients are. The, I uh, believe my experience, that's true. They are working harder. They're making less. And they... They're being they're squeezed. Simply, they're simply being squeezed. Yeah, you know, in terms uh, of time is, or money or whatever have you, they're being squeezed. And so that is my experience. That's that's very unfortunate. People can avoid a lot of problems if they know in advance. Uh, be as they walk into the ER, either themselves or with someone they care about, things that um, you need to know upfront that wouldn't be disclosed. That might not be the doctor's policy, but mm. is the policy of the hospital where the doctor is working. Yep. And it will not only affect your quality of care, but it will also affect your bottom line. Absolutely. Absolutely. This, I mean, you've opened up my eyes here a bit more than it was open before in terms, of, especially in terms of billing, but also in terms of healthcare as well. Where can my listeners Find out more about you. You've already given a lot of information about yourself, information that I will include in my show notes. Is there anything Thank else you. that you haven't mentioned that, uh, you know, where they can find out more about you, where they can find out well, more about patient advocacy, sure. anything? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the two links to the national associations are great as far as the, the profession itself. Um, as far as me, my practice, Soul Sherpa, I can be found at soulsherpa.com. Mm -hmm. um, I can be followed on Twitter at uh, my user handle is at dependable doc. Okay. 
So that wraps it for episode two of the Inner Game of Aging podcast. The show notes contain information and links on many of the things you've heard during this discussion. And you can find those show notes at theinnergameofaging.com forward slash podcast forward slash IGA002. There's lots more information coming your way, so hit subscribe on your podcast player to make sure that you don't miss any of it. Feel free to reach out to me by leaving a comment here or on the show notes page. You can also reach me directly with the following email address, lee, L-E-E, at innergameofaging.com. I really look forward to hearing from you. So, until next time... Thanks for listening to the Inner Game of Aging podcast with Lee Mo Watt. Check out more content by going to theinnergameofaging.com. That's theinnergameofaging, no spaces, dot com. Stay with us as we learn the many ways of being older without growing old.